Welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Greg Wilpert. The relatively small Central American country of Nicaragua continues to stir up much debate among progressives around the world, especially following the last presidential election, which was held on November 7th. Incumbent President Daniel Ortega was re-elected to a fourth term that election, along with his wife, Rosario Murillo, as vice president. Critics of the Ortega Murillo government charged them with undermining the country's democracy for arresting up to seven individuals who were said to be considering to run for president. Also over 100 remain arrested following protests in 2018. The Ortega government charged many of them with treason for having received money from political, for political activity from the US government and for not having disclosed their funding sources. Meanwhile, on Ortega's inauguration day in January, the United States government under Biden issued more sanctions against leading government officials. Given this and other developments in Nicaragua, to what extent does it make sense to call the Sandinista government, which, has, which in the 1980s was a beacon for the revolutionary left in Latin America, a progressive government? How deep is the US involved in undermining or potentially overthrowing Ortega? And was the November presidential election fair in the first place? These are some of the questions we will be exploring today in a debate between an Ortega critic who once was a supporter of the Sandinistas and who had worked in the Ortega foreign ministry in the 1980s and a current supporter of the Sandinista government. The critic is William I. Robinson, professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Also, he recently was an editor of the special issue of uh, the Journal on Latin American Perspectives uh, on uh, Nicaragua. On the other side, we have John Perry, who is a longtime writer for uh, Nicaragua for many different news outlets and lives in the town of Masaya, Nicaragua. Thanks, William and John, for joining me today. Pleasure to be on. You're very welcome. So let's start with you, John. As I mentioned in the introduction, uh, there has been a lot of debate on whether Nicaragua should be considered a leftist or progressive government. Since that's a very large question, let's narrow it down a little bit and look more specifically at the extent to which Ortega, who has now been in office since 2007, has ensured or failed to ensure uh, the population's social and political human rights. What's your take on this, John? Let's try to limit this intervention on all of them, actually, to about three to four minutes, okay? Well, let's start by saying that um, the Sandinistas won power, of course, first in 1979, but were very limited in what they could do during the 1980s uh, because of the sanctions from the US, intense sanctions, and the Contra war that was financed by the US. They won elections in 1984, which weren't recognized by the US, uh, and then they lost elections in 1990, which led to 16 years of corrupt neoliberal government in which uh, the, the, in which time the, the, the country uh, fell back into misery effectively. Hundreds of children weren't going to school, um, there were high levels of poverty, the health service was in collapse, there were daily power outages. Uh, for example, the community where I live had no electricity for over a year. And then Daniel Ortega regained um, the presidency in 2007. So I just want to say some of the things that have been achieved in those 15 years, bearing in mind that I live in the third poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, yet we've seen a complete transformation, for example, of the health service. Uh, the government has built 23 new hospitals, all very modern hospitals. I was in one only a week or two back. Um, this meant that the government dealt with COVID effectively during the pandemic. Um, whereas uh, children had to pay for various aspects of schooling and there was a high level of uh, absenteeism from school 
under the neoliberal governments. Now there's free education right up to university level and school children get a free lunch, which is very important. So they're tackling malnutrition. Um, in fact, there's been a massive reduction in poverty. I know William disputes these figures, but I think uh, the government claims that poverty and extreme poverty have been reduced by a half. I think the evidence is there on the streets. You simply don't see the children without shoes, the children with malnutrition that you used to see 15 years ago. And then we've seen drinking water coverage uh, improve massively from only half the country to nearly all of the country. The same with electricity, and now 70% of electricity is renewable. Uh, there have been tremendous advances in, in the position of women, so that the World Economic Forum said that Nicaragua was fifth in the world in gender, in gender equality, having been 90th in 2007. Um, and it's become the safest country in Central America. So during the period of the, the violent coup attempt in 2018, which no doubt we'll talk about later, uh, of course, things got very bad, but the, the country has recovered very quickly and it now have, has the lowest homicide rate in Central America again, and one of the lowest in the whole of Latin America, and the lowest femicide rate in the region. It's been well prepared for disasters, so that's when hurricanes Eta and Iota hit the country and it hits Honduras and Guatemala in the end, at the end of 2020. Unlike those other countries, there were very few deaths here and the communities recovered quickly. Um, and there's been a tremendous um, boost in the recognition of indigenous territories with all of the indigenous communities now having uh, autonomous systems of government. And I think that's why, essentially, you mentioned the um, election results, uh, Greg, that's why 66% of, of Nicaraguans voted in November 2021 and why whether they were ardent Sandinistas or not, or just simply wanted a stable government and, and continued economic growth, uh, why 75% of the electorate voted for the present government? So, um, William, what's your take then on Nicaragua's uh, fulfillment of social and political rights, and what's your response to John? Yeah, well, I'm not going to speak about the, the elections and some of the claims that John made, because I know we're going to come back to that in the latter part of the interview. But uh, Greg, before I start, I want to correct something you said in the introduction. You said that these people have been arrested and are put on trial, and that's what's taking place this very week, uh, because they receive money from the United States. That's not true. A couple of them have. Actually, Dora Maria Teas and many other have just been, just been sentenced to 13 years in prison for supposedly, and the actual charge is conspiracy to damage national integrity. And what they were accused of is social media. Their Twitters, their tweets, and their Facebook accounts were what uh, police intervened in them and presented them as evidence. That was the only evidence for those who have been tried. What the police said, these are tweets and this is Facebooks. And in tweets and Facebooks, what they were doing was criticizing the government. And that is illegal now to criticize the government. It's called a hate crime. It's called a violation of national sovereignty when you criticize the government. But I know we'll come back to that later, but I wanted to, cor to, to, correct, to correct you on that. Here's the thing that the international left is genuinely confused about Nicaragua because of the history of Nicaragua, but also because of the rhetoric coming out of the Ortega regime. Ortega has been remarkably uh, adroit in using radical sounding language, anti-imperialist rhetoric to strike this reflexive chord among supporters in the international left. But we need to be careful not to confuse appearance with essence and rhetoric with reality. We wanna look at the actual programmatic content of 
um, of the or Ortega regime. And what we see is there's nothing revolutionary. There's nothing socialist. It's a repressive capitalist regime. Now, I know I only have a few minutes, but I want to take the story back briefly. After the Sandinistas lost power in 1990, a new Sandinista bourgeoisie arose. They arose because they appropriated for themselves public property. The revolution had 60% of the country's property and resources had been made public as part of the 1980s revolution that was appropriated by the inner circle uh, of, around Ortega who have now become a new millionaire class. They've joined the ranks of the country's elite. They've joined the ranks of the country's capital, capitalist class. They're heavily invested in tourism and agro-industry and finance and import-export in subcontracting for the sweatshops for the maquiladores. They now share an affinity of class interests with the traditional bourgeoisie in Nicaragua. Let's remember how Ortega came back to power. In 19 he signed a pact with the extreme right constitutional liberal party and the person who was president at that time, Arnaldo, Arnaldo Aleman, a millionaire businessman himself, but also one of the most corrupt figures in all of Central America. They signed a pact of co-governance and then Ortega went on to meet with Ob uh, Cardinal Obando Bravo, who at the time was the hierarchy of the Catholic um, church hierarchy because he wanted church support and he promised and then delivered on his promise to pass the most restrictive anti-abortion law in all of Latin America. Even if you're a child who's raped and even if your life is in danger, you can't have an abortion or you're thrown in jail. And in front of Obando Obrava and Obando Bravo and the media, he said, I'd like to have a confession and apologize for the sins of the Sandinistas in the 1980s. Then they met on the eve of, of Ortega returning to power in uh, late 2006, early 2007, uh, Ortega and his uh, his representatives met with COSEP. COSEP is the Superior Council of Private Enterprise. That's the big association of big Nicaraguan capitalists. And they said, we're going to give you everything you want as, uh, economically, as long as you don't question our monopoly of of political power. They signed a pact of co-governance. So until 2018, from 2007 to 2018, Ortega uh, co-governed with the capitalist uh, with the capitalist um, class. Now, what is the economic program that Ortega has, has pursued? This is laid out in the 2006 document, what the economic program was going to be, and it has been carried out. Um, first of all, it promised that that economic program when Ortega came back to power, absolute respect for private property, unrestricted freedom for capital, no capital controls, no progressive taxation, attracting transnational corporate investment, uh, 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 promoting free trade, expanding agro-industry, and rolling out, which exactly what's happened, the welcoming map to transnational capital with 10-year across-the-board tax holiday. Corporate um, receipts plummeted after Ortega took office. Let me conclude. I know. I know. Let me just make just one other point on this. This is a, a lot to discuss here. But Ortega is compared to the pink tide. It's a very big mistake to say that Ortega is tied part of the pink tide in Latin America. Let's remember what Bolivian, what Mas did when he came to power, what Rafael Correa did when he came to power in Ecuador, what um, uh, Chavez did when they came to power. They nationalized resources and then they heavily taxed transnational corporations. Not only has nothing been nationalized in Nicaragua, 96% of the economy is in the hands of the private capitalist class. And again, tax holidays, they're not even taxed. And remember that Chavez, I'll conclude with this, Remember that Chavez led the Latin America-wide charge against the free trade area of the Americas that you were in, I think Venezuela at the time, Greg, where the, that, um, that Bush, the first Bush, the Bush, Bush senior, uh, Bush junior was imposing on Latin America. Chavez led that charge and successfully undermined this free trade area of the Americas agreement. 
distinct to that, in 2006, all of the social movements in, in Central America have mass mobilization against the Central America free trade agreement, which was the local counterpart to the continental one. And Ortega came to power, ignored those social movements, ignored the demands of the mass base in Nicaragua to reject that treaty and openly embraced the Central American free trade agreement. I mean, I could go on. We have very little time to... Uh, You'll get another chance. You'll, you'll get another chance. Uh, so let me give uh, John a chance to respond, and uh, I'll have to, in fairness, give you a little bit more time as well. So, um, what, what do you say to all of that? Uh, John? Oh, Greg, nobody's disputing that this isn't a mixed economy. The, the important thing is the important thing to emphasize is the tremendous role of small and medium enterprise in the economy. It's over half of national income uh, produced by small businesses and only 30% from the big businesses that, that William is talking about. And um, uh, Nicaragua remains a, a big uh, rural, uh, having a, real, a big rural population. It produces well over 80% of its own food. It's close to food sufficiency, self-sufficiency. Um, it's been a tremendous workshop for cooperativism. So there are well over 5,000 cooperatives employing nearly half a million people. And there's a specific uh, ministry in the government, METCA, the family ministry, which is unique in Central America, which, is, which engages with small businesses right down to individual uh, women running small shops on the side of the road. And it's, it's engaged with one and a half million people uh, last year through its 20 local offices. So yes, it's a mixed economy, but it's a mixed economy which works for ordinary Nicaraguans, which is, I repeat, why they voted for the current government in November's election. Um, John, uh, sorry, William, um, there's also, I just want to add just one other thing to what John said also that recently um, with regard to the anti-abortion law, I saw that it has never been enforced. Um, so as some people who you know, support the government say at least, well, that's not you know, really much of an issue. Uh, in addition to the fact that uh, Nicaragua has a huge amount of uh, women participating in all levels of government, uh, much more than any other country in Latin America. So I don't know if you want to address that as well uh, in, in your response. Well, I'll say with what you just said, it's never been enforced. That's, enforced. that's totally false. Rosa is a 12-year-old girl who was raped raped by her stepfather and um, under this one Ortega had already come to, back to power and she had to be smuggled out of the country to Costa Rica to get an abortion. Okay. And then she couldn't return because she was told that the 12 year old would go to jail. Later on, they were forced to back down. Um, but I want to say, you know, John is, John is saying this is a mixed economy. Well, it's a mixed economy in which 4% of the economy is in the hands of cooperatives and small businesses, but 96% of the economy is in the hands of capital, controls all sectors of the economy. And he mentioned these early improvements. I have, and by the way, I've, I've published several books on Nicaragua and I've published dozens of articles. I recognize these early improvements, but where did they come from? Because the improvements he mentioned are all up until 2014, 2007 to 2014. Three things accounted for those improvements that John mentions. First of all, there was a massive influx of transnational corporate investment. Secondly, all of Latin America, not just Nicaragua, experienced what we call the super commodities boom um, in the, up until 2013, 2014. And so all of this money came into Nicaragua. And it's true that they used some of that to build hospitals and, 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 and schools. And I applauded that at that time. But the biggest source of income that was used 
um, was four to five billion dollars in a Venezuelan subsidy as part of the ALBA program to Nicaragua. And so that's when we saw these improvements. The economies and then the, the Venezuelan funds dry up and then the super commodities boom is over and the economy starts to deteriorate in 2015 and the, the government moves on for, to, to implement all of these neoliberal measures prescribed by the IMF. But I'll conclude with this. This is the key thing. Um, John is saying the government claims this reduction in poverty. I've studied this very carefully. And the most reliable source for this, for the uh, reduction in poverty is FIDEG. FIDEG stands for International Foundation for the Global Economic Challenge. It's a Managua-based and was a government-supported um, research institute run by Alejandro Martinez Cuenca, who is an Orteguista. He's not in the opposition. And his organization has carried out household poverty surveys every single year since Ortega came back to power. And, and Ortega used to support, used to support uh, these annual surveys. And what they showed is that poverty went down from 2007 to 2014 from 44.8% to 39%. So we're talking about approximately a five and a half percent reduction in poverty. Of course, that was positive. And then from 2015, when there's no more Venezuelan subsidy, when commodities prices go down, poverty goes right back up. By 2019, 2020, it's right where it started. You know, I can go, I know I'm running out of time. John says that there's no malnutrition. Actually, international agencies tell us malnutrition is on the rise again uh, and so forth. But uh, again, just have a few minutes to comment here. Okay, John, let me give you an, uh, uh, the last word on this particular topic because <laughs> you, you haven't used all of, all of your time yet, unlike uh, William. Let me just say that FIDEG uh, does receive money from, from USA. I don't know anything about it, but FIDEG does receive USA money. And, and it's also important to note that the World Bank figures, uh, which, uh, which William has said are collected by the government. Yes, they are collected by the government, but they, they're collected under the supervision of the World Bank. And I checked with somebody about this when William made this point before, and he said they do have to have their results ratified by the World Bank before they're, before they're published. I think the important thing is really just to emphasize that yes, it's a mixed economy, but the, the, the size of the small and medium part of the economy is almost uniquely big in Latin America. And uh, the government has made these specific efforts to encourage it. And at the same time, run these big social programs that didn't stop in 2014-15. They continue because some of those hospitals that I'm talking about, including the most recent one in Chinandega, have been built last year. Um, and, and you can see the progress that's being made uh, since the, the, econ the economy began to recover after, after, the, uh, after the pandemic. Uh, and, and really, if you're here, you can see what's happening. Well, let's uh, move on. Um, and we'll get back actually to some of these issues again in the last topic, but let me um, ask about the international relations uh, because that's also been a huge issue uh, given the US, the history of US intervention in Nicaragua. As anyone who's remotely familiar with Nicaragua's history knows, the US has spent billions of dollars, including the blatant violation of international law and of Congress's will, trying to overthrow the Ortega government during the 1980s, um, and during the Reagan presidency, and to fund an armed insurgency known as the Contras. More recently, though, the US you know, obviously hasn't been doing that, but it has been spending millions of dollars via the National Endowment for Democracy and the US Agency for International Development, uh, also supporting the opposition, apparently. So um, 
Uh, and also the US government has started to introduce uh, sanctions gradually against uh, the Nicaraguan government or at least government officials. So what effect, if any, would you say um, have these efforts had on Nicaraguan economy and its politics? So let's start with you this time, William. Okay, well, I wanna say, first of all, that this is there is a confusion in the international left that there are these sanctions on Nicaragua. And in fact, I want to, even Amy Goodman, uh, in a right after the elections that were held last November, announced in the broadcast the following day that Nicaragua was experiencing, and I'm quoting her, ongoing and devastating US sanctions. Uh, John wrote an article in which he said there's tri crippling sanctions on Nicaragua. You would never know that that's completely false. There are no US trade or commercial sanctions currently on Nicaragua. The United States is Nicaragua's principal trading partner, and in 2021, trade between the two countries was $6 billion. Nicaragua continues to be a member of the Central American Free Trade Agreement, which gives it pre preferential access to the U.S. Uh, market. The United States has not blocked transnational corporate investment. In fact, what are the, in 2021, $700 million was invested by a U.S.-based company in the energy sector to build a gas-powered plant. And the company that did that investment is Fortress Energy, whose owner is Wes Edens, which is a close friend of um, of the US president of Biden and a, and a financer for the Democratic Party. The United States has not blocked it, uh, flows of international credit to Nicaragua. Just between 2017 and 2021, Nicaragua received over $3 billion in credits from international financial institutions, including the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the Central American Bank of International of, uh, for Economic Integration, the International Development Bank. I wanna point out that this flourishing trade, this lack of any sanctions, except the only sanctions are on a handful of top Ortegistas and their sanctions are only sanctions on their bank accounts and private holdings and business enterprises in the United States. And we wanna ask if these are so-called revolutionaries and leftists, why do they have million dollar bank accounts and enterprises in the United States? Those are the only um, sanctions. Now, I want to speak about, and I wanna say that this is in such radical distinction to Cuba and Venezuela. Cuba and Venezuela face these devastating all out blockades, including paramilitary aggression. There's no military or paramilitary aggression against Nicaragua. So people clump together Nicaragua with this devastating attacks against Venezuela and Cuba, and that's totally false. I wanna say something because you mentioned this about the NED, the National Endowment of Democracy and AID funding for the opposition. I wrote the first two books exposing the NED around the world. And I condemn anything the NED, the National Endowment for Democracy does around the world. I condemn any US intervention, but we have to put this in, in context. It's true that there's a $6 million over the last 10 years given to these civic opposition organizations in Nicaragua, some, uh, some of them. But uh, I have analyzed and I've shown that this funding is not aimed at, in, in Nicaragua currently at overthrowing the Sandinista government is aimed at countering anti-capitalist radicalization of civil society and not at undermining the Sandinista leadership. And the principal recipients of this NED funding has been COSEP, the capitalist class and its different affiliated organizations that has been co-governing with Nicaragua. Uh, I mean, sorry, with, with, with Ortega. The NED provides moreover funding to 100 countries around the world, the vast majority of them close US allies. Guatemala and Honduras combined receive more NED funding than does Nicaragua. So obviously just because a country is receiving NED funding doesn't mean that that means that the NED is trying to overthrow the government. Colombia receives millions of dollars, the closest US ally in Latin America from NED 
uh, funding. And, I'll and, I'll, and with regard to the aid, the Agency for International Development, which is the parent organization, the AID has given several hundred million dollars to the Ortega government for import export support for the health and educational sector and for many different programs, development programs. So, so Ortega's received $200 million since he came to power until 2018 from the Agency for International um, uh, Development. And um, I'll just conclude with this, that Ortega has been broadly praised, again, all of this up until 2018, by the International Monetary Fund, by the World Bank, and by the AID for its neoliberal economic policies that we condemn anywhere else in Latin America when the IMF and the World Bank prescribe neoliberal policies. And if the, the government is complemented by the World Bank and the IMF, we say, oh, that government's bad. And in Nicaragua, some leftists are confused and saying, well, look, we should support Ortega, even the IMF and the World Bank like Ortega. Um, Okay. Well, let me, let, me, let me give John a chance to respond. Um, and especially, you know, John, you've also written on this topic. Um, what's, what's your response? Yeah, well, let's look at what the USAID has spent since 2017. They've spent $178 million. And that's gone into funding hostile media, social media attacks, opposition think tanks, training programs for young people. One was uh, gave uh, offered training to 2,000 Nicaraguans in so-called party politics political uh, training. Um, the $178 million is $27 per, per Nicaraguan. If that was spent in the US, it would be $9 billion. It's a huge amount of money in a small economy. One of the most important programs is called RAIN, um, Responsive Assistance in Nicaragua, which is a specific a regime change program that was set up before the elections and is designed to run even if, as happened, uh, the Sandinista government won the elections. And then in the election year, the National Endowment for Democracy had 22 projects, uh, uh, a number of them working with young people. They, the, the, the agencies in the US have, have commissioned creative associates who's involved in the, in the interference programs in Cuba uh, to work in, in Nicaragua. And the, the amount of money going to the opposition, just to give one example, um, in 2021, the Chamorro family, uh, three of whom are, are um, or two of whom are under arrest at the moment, uh, received nearly $4 million, uh, which was then channeled to their own media outlets and other opposition media outlets. In the build-up to the violence in 2018, um, the Kenneth Wallach, who's now the chairman of the National Endowment for Democracy, bragged to the US con Congress on June the 14th, 2018, that they trained 8,000 young Nicaraguans to take part in the April uprising. Um, so what did they teach them? Social media methods, presumably. Did they teach them how to organize violent roadblocks that were set up immediately in many cities? Um, the US ambassador has been engaged with all of the opposition leaders and with the uh, business leaders in the run-up to 2018 and since to promote the opposition viewpoint. Um, and clearly before the 2018 violence, that there would, there'd be massive provision from somewhere. We don't know where the money came from, but somebody uh, had, had ordered thousands of homemade mortar guns and munitions so that the uh, people at the roadblocks in 2018 were armed as soon as the roadblocks were, were created. And that secret money must have been coming throughout the period of violence in 2018 because uh, money was being brought to the people who were, to the, the violent thugs really, who were 
who were manning the roadblocks. Uh, Dora Maria Tejas was seen bringing this money, bringing drugs, bringing food to the roadblocks in Masaya, for example. Uh, who paid for that money? There were sacks of local money being uh, carried around to pay the people running the, the, the roadblocks. There was a tsunami of Facebook posts with loads and loads of fake news that convinced many people, including me for a short while, about uh, the fact that the government was killing students. Uh, and, you know, almost all of the, the posts were found to, later to be false. Where did the serious weapons come from? The AK-47s, the carbines that quickly were being used in places like Masaya and in Atepe. Um, who was playing, paying for the frequent opposition visits to the US? Um, who was feeding all of the opposition news stories to the international media so they never reported anything that was favorable to the Ortega government or indeed never reported the reality of what was happening here in, in 2018? Um, uh, William is right to say that the sanctions aren't as tough as they are against Cuba or Venezuela, but they're still pretty tough. Um, the, the, the US government is picking off individuals within, the, within Daniel Ortega's government uh, every now and again, uh, identifying them, sanctioning them, and that means they can no longer sign uh, international contracts or manage bank affairs. Uh, it doesn't affect them personally because most of them haven't got accounts in the United States, but they do need to be able to run effectively their ministries. We've seen the, the indirect effects of sanctions as well. So banks are unwilling to transfer money. Uh, it's making it difficult to bring medical supplies into the, into the country, including during the COVID, COVID pandemic. Um, and we've seen the relentless media campaigns that aren't quite sanctions, but get close to it. So. Um, I was involved in, in, in trying to demolish the campaign on, by PBS NewsHour to portray um, Nicaraguan meat as conflict beef, as they call it. And then we had the whole uh, panic around COVID where the local media and then joined by international media were saying that uh, COVID was handled totally disastrously in Nicaragua, which is completely uh, dishonest of them because everything here went, uh, relatively speaking, uh, very well. Um, we've had the travel advice against traveling to Nicaragua, which continues. Many mainstream airlines are still not uh, serving. Okay, let me, let me, so let I, me give. Have to look at the complete picture, not just individual details like uh, William was focusing on. Okay, well, let me give William another chance to respond and then we'll get back to you again. So, uh, William, uh, what do you think? I mean, in terms of that, uh, what, what John is saying. Well, I think John's entitled to his own opinion, but not his own facts. And so we have some facts, some 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 opinions here, which are presented in facts. But we also have some interpretations, which uh, interpretations of his, which are simply completely indefensible. So to begin with, and again, I want to I want to reiterate, I condemn anything that NED does anywhere around the world, including in Guatemala, in Honduras, in Colombia, uh, in Brazil, in Peru. Um, anywhere, but the NED head never went to Congress and said, we've given this money to overthrow the Nicaraguan government. John created those words, which are not in any record uh, anywhere. He also said that the sanctions are pretty tough, again, and that they affected this, the government's response to COVID. That's com com simply false. Again, the sanctions are on these individuals' holdings in the United States. They're private holdings in the United States. They're not on any Nicaraguan enterprises. Um, and far as, and we haven't discussed the 2018 uh, uprising, and we don't have enough time to do that. But um, 
international human rights organizations carried on the ground detailed investigations in Nicaragua. They interviewed every, anyone and everyone across the board. They condemned the, the government for brutal repression, for opening up fire on what started out as peaceful protests. As far as the weapons, these sophisticated weapons, they had homemade weapons. They had literally, some of them had slingshots. Other ones had these homemade rifles. and other ones, they did create their own little mortar weapons. That's street fighting and clashes that take place all over the world. But they have these petty little, you know, petty little homemade weapons, whereas the army, the police, and paramilitary squads with all of the sophisticated weaponry of the army police and these paramilitaries that were supplied by the army and police unleashed this mass repression. And the international human rights organizations tell us that, that and there were some Sandinistas killed, both Sandinista political supporters and also Sandinista police were killed, but the vast majority of those killed were the students and the, and the, and the popular neighborhood uh, protests. And we know exactly how those protests started. The, the, the first of all, the students took to the streets totally peacefully because there was this massive fire in a bio in a bio reserve on the Atlantic coast, and the government did nothing about it. And the younger generation is very environmentally conscious. That was completely peaceful. And in the midst of those peaceful protests, in which their heads were clobbered by the police and they were chased off the streets, in the midst of that, the government uh, raised, following IMF prescriptions, neoliberal prescriptions, raised the amount that people had to contribute to pensions and lowered the amount that people were received from pensions. And this is a population already reeling in poverty and unemployment and underemployment. And with that, workers joined the protest and other people joined the protest and the women's organizations joined the protest and the police opened fire. And the first open fire were students that were killed in the polytechnic, which the government just closed. And then the whole thing escalated. Then there's violence on both sides, but disproportionate violence, because again, you have the army police and the paramilitaries on one side, and you have people with some homemade weapons setting up street barricades, which is exactly how the insurrection of 1979 uh, took place. But I want to conclude. I know, again, we always have these time limits, but he said a couple things about COVID. Um, and first of all, the government received an emergency loan of close to $100 million to deal with COVID. So he's trying to say that the sanctions blocked the government's response to COVID. That's false, John. But secondly, more significantly, um, the government has been accused of underreporting the COVID cases and, and of having a very negligent response. So 24 medical associations on the eve of the elections, 24 medical associations, talking about the medic, and these are not political organizations, the Association of Nicaraguan Oncologists, the Association of Nicaraguan Pediatrists, the Association of Nicaraguan Cardiologists. They all said that we're in the hospitals, we're seeing people dying of COVID, but the government tells us we have to say they're dying from something else. For that crime of saying that we have this COVID problem, 24 medical associations were banned. Their license was revoked. So this gives an idea. I mean, we go into so much more. This is a family dictatorship. This is a government that acts like a dictatorship anywhere else in Latin America. Um, I, I don't know. I'm out of time. Greg, I'd like to say something else. I assume I'm out of time. Yeah, uh, we'll get back to you again. But <laughs> so first, uh, John, what uh, what do you have to say to <laughs> that? Oh, just just on COVID. I mean, I, William, I'm afraid you're repeating a lot of the lies that were told at the time. Uh, but let's just say the the Washington-based Washington Washington State-based Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation says that uh, on their judgment, not the government figures, on their judgment, Nicaragua has the lowest COVID death rate in. Central America and a lower death rate than the United States. Um, 
and let me just tell you that almost 60% of the population are now uh, fully vaccinated, which is only a few percentage points behind the US, and well over 80% have had at least uh, one vaccine dose. But let me go back to, briefly to, to the violence, because this is very important. Uh, um, uh, William, you mentioned uh, the protests against the pensions. They started on April the 18th, and there, was no, there were no deaths on April the 18th. They continued on April the 19th when the first three deaths occurred. Now, those three deaths were a police officer, a Sandinista uh, uh, worker who was trying to defend a town hall from being attacked, and somebody who was walking home from work. There were no protesters killed on the first day of those protests. Yes, there were subsequently, but we were then in a period in which 22 police officers were killed and over 900 um, injured. And many of those had, uh, had uh, life-changing in, in, injuries. I spoke to uh, a, a police inspector who said that one of his, uh, one of his uh, officers had been shot in the genitals and had lost his, his genitals as a result of uh, the, the violence in that period. Now, I lived through this violence so I was in Messiah practically the whole of the period when this violence was taking place. I, I was able to go to see the town hall the day after it was burned down. I was, go, I, was a, I was in tears looking at the houses of friends of mine that were burned down, including my own doctor's house. The main secondary school in the center of Messiah was burned down twice. All the shops were closed for three months. Many of them were looted. The police who were confined to their barracks from, from mid-May until mid-June uh, were attacked every night. And during that period in Messiah, three police officers were killed, uh, one of whom was tortured for 24 hours before he was killed. And he was, he was dragged behind a pickup truck uh, before he was actually set on fire at one of the barricades. A friend of mine, two friends of mine, who were involved in, the, in defending the municipal uh, depot was which was attacked by about 500 people many of whom had conventional weapons all of the workers were kidnapped these two were taken away they were tortured and both have suffered grave injuries one lost his arm it had to be amputated because it was so it was so badly damaged by being hit by rifle butts and you know the people who lived through these violent experiences in cities like Masaya and Hinatepe parts of Managua um, uh, and other cities that were completely taken over by these roadblocks, know that these people did not just have homemade weapons. They had very serious weaponry. And furthermore, the people who were brought in to man the roadblocks, particularly no, no, uh, at nighttime, were well-known violent um, elements within society, including um, uh, uh, people being brought in from Honduras or El Salvador, gang uh, members from those countries. So. This is why, one of the principal reasons why uh, people rejected uh, the opposition in the, in the elections or rejected the opposition calls to abstain and voted massively for the, the Daniel Ortega government because they may not necessarily be Sandinista, but they wanted to return to the stability and, uh, and calm and safety that existed before 2018. Well, I think this thing, actually what you just said just sets the stage for us to move on to the next topic and we'll get back to some of the other things and also I forgot to mention I want to give you both also an opportunity later on to uh, add on any things that you feel like were left unsaid so we're, we'll probably not run out of time to say to cover everything you'd like to cover so um, but um, 
just turning to the election now, um, uh, we've kind of set up the, the both the domestic and the international context. Um, now, as was mentioned earlier, also Ortega, uh, according to the official election results, was reelected with 75% of the vote and a participation of 66%. Now, the big question is, of course, and this is what you know has been disputed, uh, including you know by the OAS and the Biden administration, uh, arguing that this was not a fair election uh, or and not a legitimate election. Uh, now, since uh, we're going back and forth, uh, let me uh, start with you, John. Uh, what would you say? Was this a fair and legitimate election in, on November 7th? Uh, yes, indeed, it was, of course. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I'm sure that um, uh, William will start to talk about again about the people who were arrested prior to the elections, but none of them were presidential candidates. It's true that one or two of them might have eventually succeeded to be presidential candidates, but they certainly weren't at the time when they were arrested. And frankly, I think even if um, one or two of them had stood, 